Hey guys, just wanted to let you know that today our guest is speaking about some sensitive subjects. They're important subjects, but still, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. And I'm Ariel Seagard, Acting Alum. And in this episode, we bring you a writer who's collaborated with two of the most powerful women in Hollywood. Wonder Woman. And Shonda Rhimes. The writer, Alan Heinberg. If what you're concerned with is your name being out there and what people are saying about you and doing, you're not going to get any work done. You're just not. So by giving up the dream of what traditional success looks like, I got my name on Wonder Woman. His TV writing credits span from the feels of Party of Five to the fashionable life of Carrie and Sex in the City. And the broness of the OC to Shondaland on Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and The Catch. And it all can be traced back to the musical tale of a sad orphan who innocently asked, Please, sir, may I have some more? I started as a singer and as an actor, and I really wanted to express, you know? And I was gay, but I didn't know it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which basically tells you everything. So I had a lot I couldn't express and a lot I couldn't be, and I wanted to. And in 1970, well, I don't even know when it was. I saw the movie Oliver, which is a musical based on Oliver Twist, and I saw kids my age singing and dancing and acting and expressing, and I was like, I want to do that. I want to do what they're doing. And then Annie happened on Broadway, and I was like, First of all, Andrew McArdle is amazing. Even, even as like a six-year-old, seven-year-old, I was like, she is amazing. So I wanted to do that. And so I started singing professionally really early. And it, a lot of it was about, I want to be on Broadway. And I think some of it was like, look at me, look at me. But a lot of it was, I want to be with other people who like this stuff and don't think I'm a freak and call me a fag. Like, I want to go where my people are. I loved Broadway, I loved the movies, I loved TV. And so like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the only thing I had was the New York Times Arts and Leisure section on Sunday once I was old enough to subscribe. So like a lot of my focus was like, I wanna get there. Even at Yale, I wasn't present. I wanted to skip university and go straight to New York and be on Broadway and write Broadway shows and write movies and stuff. I wanted to get there. He was really anxious to get his career started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was like at Yale, which pretty, pretty good school, you yeah. know, and he's like, no, I got to get to Broadway. I love the fact how he knew when he was young what he wanted. It's like he saw them from afar. Yeah. You know, uh, Oklahoma, as you know. As I know, I'm from Oklahoma. I did the same thing. What are these people doing? They're making noises and running around. Oh, I like that. (laughs) You know, you see that as a young child and you know that that's your tribe. Of course, you're going to run to it. Hearing him talk about how that just kind of opened him up to express himself and really delve deep into why do I like this? And this really allowed him to find himself, I think is so beautiful. During this whole time, though, the back of his mind had this one character. And that character, of course, was Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman! Wonder Woman! I cannot stand by while innocent lives are lost. It is our sacred duty to defend the world. And it's what I'm going to do. It's such a weird story. 
I think it was a cartoon called Super Friends when I was seven years old, I think. Because um, that was before the Linda Carter Wonder Woman series that took place in 70, I think it started in 76. So I got exposed to the character really early on and fell madly in love with her and was obsessed with her comics for a long time. And then flash forward after I had graduated from college and moved to New York, I'd written a play about her. My first produced play off-Broadway was about Wonder Woman. And that play got me out to LA and to writing TV and, and eventually writing movies. And then I ended up writing the comic book because DC knew that she was my favorite character. And when they relaunched Wonder Woman in 2005, Dan DiDio, who's the publisher, offered that book to me. And I couldn't say no, even though I was really busy doing Grey's Anatomy. And then when I left Grey's, a couple of years had gone by and I asked Peter Roth, who, who runs the place, if Jeff Johns and I redeveloped Wonder Woman as a TV series. And we did. And it was an odd process because they were really in the Smallville mindset. They didn't really want the uniform that was grounded was the, the term. And so basically she was just a super cop. We started it as a kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's a mythological creature. She's fighting mythological creatures. They didn't want that. They wanted her fighting crime. So then it became sort of a police procedural. With, it was a rough fit because they didn't want Themyscira. They didn't want any of the stuff that ended up, it's such an irony. So the CW basically just killed it after reading one draft. They didn't even give notes. They were just like, no, Themyscira, no. And I was wounded and sad. And uh, then I went back to Shondaland. I did three seasons on Scandal and then Wonder Woman was being developed as a movie at that point. So my buddy Jeff, who, who is chief creative officer of DC Comics, is very involved in the movies. And this was two years ago. And I'm a TV writer, and usually there's like a big wall between TV writers and movie writers. And like there are some very skilled and talented and highly accomplished screenwriters in town. And some of them are very famous, and some of them are very famous for doing great work but not getting their names on scripts. Because, you know, these movies have like 15, 19 writers on them. Um, sometimes, but it's usually the same people that get these jobs over and over and over again. And it's a big risk for them to go to somebody like me and say, hey, you know, Alan, who's never written a script since we were at Yale together and I wrote one for my senior thesis, would you like to write a huge blockbuster temple movie? They don't do that. So I've just been quietly supportive of Jeff for these past few years as he's worked with his people. Then he called and said, We've hit a wall. This was after about a year of development. And Zack Snyder really wants to sort of like go back to the beginning with the character and the fundamentals. And he wanted to get his team together with Jeff's team and like really talk about core character concepts. And Jeff very graciously said, there's only one person I want on my team and that's Alan. So Zack was like, cool. Ask him what he wants from Tender Greens and then see <laughs> what time he can get here. And so I ordered the chicken, there was a chicken <laughs> kale salad, in case you were interested on the side. Uh, no potatoes. It was good. And uh, I get to Zach's and it's like me and Jeff and Zach and his assistant, Trevor, who's awesome, and his team. And they're very intimidating and there are a lot of them and they are very cool. And they have tattooed sleeves and they've got suspenders and it was very Mumford and Sons. There's sideburns happening and I'm feeling like 
Hollywood. This is Hollywood and we're eating tender greens, but whatever. <laughs> so um, we sit down and he starts pitching me where they are with the movie. And it's, he's pitching me. He's yeah. saying, dude, here's where we are. And I said, well, here's the thing. The story that you're pitching me is very much like her story in Batman versus Superman. She has a brief arc, but she has an arc. And it feels like you're telling the same story twice. I said, there's really only one essential Wonder Woman story, and then it gets harder to tell stories about her after you've told that story. And that's the origin story. And it's a fish out of water story, and I reference Splash. Mostly, I said, the problem with Wonder Woman, as I have discovered, trying to develop her, was that she didn't have an origin myth that was primarily emotional and relatable. People get scared by the gods, they get scared by the Amazons, there are a lot of Greek names, there's a lot. And Batman, it's super easy. His parents get murdered and he wants revenge. <laughs> super easy. And Superman is the ultimate immigrant story. You know, he loses his parents and his planet, and he goes to his adopted planet and is just trying to be loved by being a good boy. And we can all relate. And with Wonder Woman, it's like, she's made of clay and, uh, oh God, it just stops there. So I said to Zach, and I later got in trouble for it on the internet for talking about this, but what I said to Zach is, to me, it's The Little Mermaid. It's a really emotional story about a young woman who's grown up in this very closed world, something a lot of us can relate to, wanting to go out on her own and try to be herself and a good person and make her mom proud. And you've got a, a parent like King Triton who really knows how bad the world is and knows that he's offering his daughter up to a world that does not deserve her. So I tell this story to Zach and I didn't expect Zach to respond necessarily, but I was there to eat my chicken and save my peace <laughs> and go. And then we walk out to the parking lot after about two and a half hours, three hours, and Zach is like, so what are you doing tomorrow? Do you think you could be here by 7.15? And I was like, for what exactly? And he's like, dude, we're gonna do your movie. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, let's do that. We should do that. Like, I'll get whiteboards. It'll be you and me and Jeff. And we'll just like re-break the movie from scratch. So I was like, I, okay, okay, okay. I'll do it, yeah, okay. Can you imagine being a TV writer and the the one character that you've loved your entire life, you then, out of the blue, basically, get asked to write her origin story, feature, film, it's going to premiere everywhere, right. and your entire life, you've loved her. I think he willed it into existence. Oh, yeah. And especially because it had false starts. Like, there was a TV show that didn't happen. And they've tried to do other Wonder Woman TV shows that also flop. This has been like a curse with this character. Right. They've been trying for so long to get this thing a reboot, and it was almost like he was just waiting. Yeah, without and, knowing that that's what he was waiting for. Right, 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 right. Just by being a friend. Oh, you man. know. I need to make sure I make some good friends. Yeah, about to say. <laughs> and then also, too, like, he was ready. Right. Because he knew the character, he knew the world. Yeah, but... There was only one little problem with all of this. He was already employed. By Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> he already had a contract. <laughs> with, like, the greatest TV producer there is. So you get offered this incredible deal, but uh, you got to go to the boss. One dream getting in the way of another. We broke the movie in what I want to say is three days. I had to write something for him to pitch to the studio that Monday. So it was like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, right, 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 Saturday, Sunday. Zach pitches Monday, they green light 
this movie that we've just rebroken over three days. He says, dude, now you have to write the treatment. I'm like, I'm full-time on Scandal, dude, I can't. <laughs> so he's like, you can do it, I know you can do it. And Zach is awesome. Like, when he looks at you with his surfery eyes and like, <laughs> his tattoos and he tells you you can do it, no one talks to me that way with, <laughs> Okay, if Zach thinks I can do it, I can do it. So I write this treatment in a week, and it's, you know, it's a lot of words on a page. And then Zach is like, cool, that got approved. You're writing the script. And I said, no, no, because they needed it in no time. The movie had a release date. Like, we're now up against it. Like, Michelle McLaren is scouting locations. That's who was directing the movie at that time. Like, it's happening. And I know myself, and I wasn't going to put myself in a position where I could fail at the outset. So I said no. And he was like, do you want me to call Shonda Rhimes? And I said, no, please don't do that. Um, I'll, t I'll talk to her. I'll, why don't I talk to Shonda and we'll just see what happens. Knowing. Shonda's like, fuck no. So I call her assistant. I'm like, Abby, does she have five minutes in the morning? And like, she's in my office like that. And she's like, are you quitting? I was like, no. You, I have a two, year, two more years on my deal with you. You own me. However, something has come up. And she is an extraordinary woman. Like, we could do hours on how extraordinary Shonda is. Shonda said, well, you have to do it. That's Wonder Woman. You have to. And she made it possible. Like, I went down to three days a week. Like, no showrunner in town would have said this, except Shonda Rhimes. And so the movie was made, and it, and it was that movie. So Zach was true to his word. Oh, well, thank you. Listen, I mean, you saw it. It's a relationship movie. It has some fighting in it and stuff, but it's about these two people. Like, Zach is a hero f to me for championing this vision of this movie. And then when we lost Michelle, who wanted to make a different movie, Patty Jenkins got involved and really embraced it and took it to the next level. And, I mean, she's just an incredible human and collaborator. And, and you know, Zach and Debbie Snyder gave notes all along the way. It really was this incredible group effort. You know, it's interesting. The, the history of Hollywood is written by so many examples of, like, people who could not get out of their contract for, like, the role they dreamt of. But Shonda Rhimes, I mean... The fact that she... When she must have known also his history with Wonder Woman, don't you think? The oh, way yeah, um, that he even to. poses that of how she... It's Wonder Woman. Go. <laughs> right. I think it's it, it goes to show that, you know, sometimes you can have this idea of being scared to ask those questions. And it sounded like he was a little timid to sure. ask her. And Especially then her. Like her. Exactly. The Wonder Woman of TV. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that he went there, he asked her, and she was so understanding. That, that I mean, that says a lot about her. But good for him to have that courage to, to take it on his own and, and to ask. And, and I think being around people like Shonda Rhimes or... Amy Sherman Palladino, who was a showrunner on Gilmore Girls, they also taught him, like, now you stick to your guns. That's how you're going to get the best script. I did not get fired, although I did try to quit 16 times, <laughs> and they just wouldn't let me. It's something, I guess I learned it from Amy Sherman Palladino because she created Gilmore Girls and she has a very specific vision and whenever Warner Brothers would push back, she'd say, okay, then I'm just, I just won't do the show because I don't know, I don't know how to do it that way. So I'm going to go and they would go, no, Amy, stop. So that's what I would end up doing is go like, that is a totally valid way to go. I don't know how to do that. So I'm going to go. And they're like, wait, 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 stop. Okay, we'll do it your way. That has been the big discovery of my time 
as a professional writer. It has taken me a while to figure it out. And I think I knew it intuitively, but I didn't understand it. I wish I'd understood it sooner, and maybe you can relate to this, because I think it applies to whatever it is you do. But the job, especially writing TV and film, the job is to serve. Like, you are here to serve. And you're not here to be walked on. You know, whenever they would push back in a way that I couldn't do, I would say, I bow out. Like, I'm here to serve the character. I'm here to serve the studio. I'm here to serve Patty Jenkins and Gall. But, like, if I'm not able to do what you need me to do, it's not about me. I'm going to go. I'm going to leave, and you guys can go on your way. But while I work for Patty Jenkins, while I work for Shonda Rhimes, or ABC or Warner Brothers, I'm here to serve them. And the surrendering of ego and caring about what people say about me or think about me or my legacy when I'm gone, like all that crap, like unburdening myself of that has been the major discovery of my adult life. And it has just made it all much more fun. Do you know what I mean? Like you guys know that any attachment to thinking about how others perceive you or you know, how you're doing in comparison to others, what other people think, it's just my ego. Any suffering I've had in this business has been as a result of my ego. Just letting go right. and not worrying about what other people are thinking, just staying true to yourself. I, I applaud him. Well, I think it's funny too, it's like, normally you would say someone threatening to walk out is like the height of- Diva. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no, I cannot have it my way, I am gone. <laughs> In his case though, it was, weirdly enough, it's like the total opposite. It wasn't so much like fighting it and like being like, no, I have to be this, I have to be this. And he was like, nah, I'm, I'm good. Like, well, he, you want something else. Exactly, and he's doing it Fine. for them. You know, you want a certain thing, I don't think I can deliver that. I want you to have what you want, so I'm going to bow out. It's him being like, no, I want you to have what you want. I right. just can't give it to you. Yeah, go, be well, work with someone <laughs> else, work with one of the other dozen writers. Exactly. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good, yeah. And the fact that they keep on, no, 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 wait, no, uh, no, come back. <laughs> right. They wouldn't and, let him go. And that's where the script comes from. I mean, when you, when you see the film, you can totally tell that he never lost sight of what made Wonder Woman so special to him as this kid growing up in Oklahoma. It is that ultimate wish fulfillment fantasy. If you had these abilities, how would you use them and how would you make a difference or try to? I love that it seems to appeal to the heroic instinct in people, or at least that's my interpretation of it, because these are not, I think with the exception of that Will Smith movie, Hancock, these are movies about people who want to make a difference and help. And in the end, Hancock, that's his arc too. And so the impulse to go to them, I think, is a good one and, a, and an affirming one. Obviously, superheroes had a huge effect on me as a seven-year-old because now I'm 50 and I'm still obsessed with the same character. So I think if you get kids exposed to that early enough and they're the right kid, it can have an, a profound effect. Like, you know, fantasies play an enormous role. These Star Wars movies, especially when I was growing up, you know, that had a profound effect on the psyches of all kinds of young people and informed, you know, a sort of who they are and, and, and what they believe in. Those are anti-fascist movies. I mean, I'm sure there are fascists who would disagree with me, but I think when you are exposed to pop culture at an early age, it has an absolutely powerful and transforming effect on who you are. And it's emotional because when you're so young, you're not jaded, you're not distanced, you're raw, you're, you feel everything. Probably even as young as you guys are, you still feel everything much more directly. And so 
I think they're profoundly important. I really do. My only goal for Wonder Woman, I said this to Patty one day when we were working, was I want little boys, straight and gay, to leave the theater wanting to be Diana. You know what I mean? Because on the playground, when we would play superheroes in middle school, or not middle school, but grade school, I would want to be Wonder Woman. And you're immediately a fag if you want to be Wonder Woman. And I just didn't want another little boy to, you know what I mean? Like that's not only to avoid the shame of that, but also like, she's pretty cool. Like, you know, the sort of gender thing notwithstanding, you should really want to read about her. Like, they wouldn't even make Wonder Woman action figures, female action figures, for decades because boys won't buy them. They will not buy them. And girls don't, there was no audience for, for that with young women. They weren't writing stories for young women involving superheroes for decades when I was growing up. To get a Wonder Woman action figure was, uh, that was tough. I think we've come a long way, but yeah, I think they're pretty important. I just want to talk about how lucky young girls are who are growing up right now that have all of this to inspire them. I mean, he's talking about it, too, about how when we were all younger, you wouldn't see those type of women in the movies or action figures and all of that. And I mean, sure, she was a comic, but we weren't exposed to that the way that young girls and boys are exposed to it now. And he's right, we still have a way to go, but oh my goodness, the fact, if I was a little girl and I had Wonder Woman to look at when I was younger, oh, I probably would have done <laughs> so much more, <laughs> or differently at least. You'd be right now lifting a car oh, to yeah. save someone. I yeah. would be ripped. <laughs> <laughs> and what's great too, Wonder Woman, not only, and we'll just say the best of the DC Universe movie so far, I think it's fair to say. I'm I'm way okay with, with all due that. respect. <laughs> but then also even Justice League, how much her character popped. Yeah. It was Wonder Woman who really was like the root of that thing. And she is now the one that built that DC house and the way Iron Man has built it for the Marvel universe. It really opened up the doors for more powerful women to step through. Wonder Woman made some money, right? <laughs> So that's the most important thing. People showed up for Wonder Woman and it got an enormous amount of wonderful press. Not universally wonderful, but I really did not know if people would show up, especially women. So we've sort of demonstrated that there is a market. You know, every once in a while, a movie comes along to demonstrate that there is a market for this kind of thing. It is very difficult to make something like this a bullseye to hit because we weren't trying to make a feminist movie. Our aim was just to tell her story as well as we could. So I think it would be a mistake to go past the observation of like, oh, there's a marketplace for movies like Wonder Woman or Bridesmaids or Sex and the City, the movie. But occasionally these movies come along that say you can make money by telling stories that are primarily emotional stories. I still think it's a, you have to get it right and it's a little scary, so I don't know. I know Marvel's obviously doing Captain Marvel, which I hope is great, and I know there's been interest at DC in sort of taking that Harley Quinn character and doing more with Harley Quinn, but I think people are going to see a space, like there's a space that we can serve, an audience we can serve. It's just a matter of, it's not going to be a formula you can replicate, I don't think. Do you know what I mean? Even Wonder Woman 2, I was involved in early talks for Wonder Woman 2, and it's not a magic trick you can do twice. You really need to come up with a compelling and emotional story that can stand on its own. 
so many of his ideas, you know, make it to this film. He's one of the only credited writers to it. Unfortunately, you have all these other writers who also had their connection to Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. Some of them even got hired to write treatments and scripts because in Hollywood, you might pay 10 different people to, in essence, do the same job with only one of them actually having their work make it to the screen or at least have their names appear in the credits. Tough world out there. Tough world out there. (laughs) But knowing this character so well and her story so well, he was able to shine. Yeah, it's like he had the depth of his appreciation. He loves the character of Wonder Woman, but he also understands why he loves the character of Wonder Woman. Right. I think it's funny how he was talking about how they didn't set out to write a feminist movie, yet look what they got. And I think that that's the difference between Alan Heinberg and some some of these other writers. He loves the character, sure, and he can connect with it, but he knows her as well as he probably knows his best friends here on Earth (laughs) in 4D, you know. But it goes to show that, you know, all these other scripts could have been outstanding. But the thing that set his apart was how much he knows this character. It just took the producers and the studio hiring a lot of people before they found the the right one. I think in total there were 12 screenwriters involved in Wonder Woman, each doing his or her own version privately, and then you turn it into the studio and the producers, and then they usually decide, we like this, we don't like this, we fire you, we hire you, but I never read anything anybody else ever does, ever. It's very private because that way it protects them and it protects you. There's no stealing. You know what I mean? Like I never had access to any of those documents. Now, with some of the bigger superhero movie universes, like Transformers, like the Marvel Universe, maybe Universal Monsters, there are things now called writer's rooms where they get a bunch of these screenwriters together for long periods of time, like TV writers, and they talk about the universe and all the different stories you could tell in that universe. And then usually they end up asking each screenwriter if they want to stay involved, which one of these do you want to do? At which point the writers all go off on their own. But writers rooms are becoming more and more commonplace. DC was going to do one and then we didn't end up doing it um, for scheduling reasons, I think. But you sign a waiver and you get a nominal fee and you don't own any of the material that you generate, but you get first writer refusal to write one of these movies if you participate. How fun would it be to be in a writer's room that you're just talking about all these different universes and you can come up with all these ideas and bouncing it back and forth. Getting arguments about Bumblebee. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy to think about how you just sit there and you put your all into it and it could stop there. And then you're stuck with all these questions of like, but I want to do this and this and this. But now you don't own that material anymore. But it's also, if you go online, you can find old versions of so many different screenplays, you know, ones that were sometimes drastically different as they went through different writers because then a different director comes on and they want their own writer or a different actor comes on. Oh, yeah. And then they're like, oh, no, no, but I, my producing partner is going to do a rewrite. So it's like, it, it, it's in some ways more heckless this stuff ever gets made when it goes through that many hands. I kind of want to take Wonder Woman and see all the scripts that, yeah. and yeah, then yeah, have yeah. them all made and then watch them like <laughs> right after another one. A billion dollars worth of Wonder <laughs> Woman movies have been made. Uh, it, it, well, even uh, The Exorcist had Exorcist the beginning 
which is like a prequel, and they shot it, and then they were so unhappy with it that they reshot the movie after it was already shot. Not oh, not, wow. not not the script, the, the actual film. <laughs> and then they'll go, well, this time we'll double the budget, and we'll keep we'll fire every actor but one. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it didn't work out for that version either. I mean, luckily, they had him. Right. You know, and then they also had initially Michelle McLaren to direct. Now, she directed Breaking Bad, right. one of the great episodes of one of the greatest shows of all time. Also did Game of Thrones, a bunch of other TV she was ready to direct Wonder Woman. It's going to be her feature debut. Creative differences. Suddenly, she's not on it anymore. Patty Jenkins steps in, who directed the Shawis Theron film Monster, which is incredible. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. Yeah. I love Monster. <laughs> and she was ready to rock. And luckily, Patty Jenkins and Alan Heiberg got along swimmingly. When Patty came on board the movie, I had only written the first half. She came on board at page 60. Because the way it was scheduled, I had to turn in, every 21 days, I had to turn in another set of pages. I think it was four segments of 30 pages. So Michelle left the movie at page 60. Patty came on board the movie at page 60. So we were actually able to build the back half of the movie working very closely together off of that treatment I had written. So where there were places where Patty didn't understand a scene or thought maybe we could go in this direction, like we were on the phone or having meals together daily. We had a very close working relationship. And then once that was done, I went to London where they were prepping and we worked through the entire script together for a three week period. And then when I left, I didn't get to see them because I was busy doing the catch. But up until that point, we were talking every day and emailing all day, every day. Must be crazy to work on a film with someone and become like family, working so close every day to then it, the show ends and you kind of, it's got like a little <laughs> part of you missing. <laughs> but it sounds like they work so closely together so they were able to share that same vision. That's that's pretty remarkable, and that's probably why it ended right. up being so awesome. And she came in on page 60 during yeah. development, like literally halfway through the development process of the script and just was able to jump in. And, and that's what they needed over at DC and Warner Brothers because they had their date. Right. And it's like, all right, uh, let's find another director who can jump in right at a party and make this thing happen. And sometimes chemistry works. Sometimes you get just the right people together at the right time. And out of that comes Wonder Woman, which, of course, exceeded all their expectations. And, and I think also what helps Alan Heinberg's own background, right. you know, his view of women, where he was not only like comfortable writing strong women, but like, in essence, that to him was writing women. Right. He didn't view it as like, I have to write a woman who's this or that. No, he worked with Shonda Rhimes. He worked with Amy Sherman Palladino. And even his own mother was an inspiration to him to make sure he really captured a strong female voice. Yeah, might as well write what you know. And luckily, he knows the right people. That's all I do. That's all I do. And again, we have my mother probably to thank for that. She's a very loud, assertive presence. And, you know, it was the 70s, and she was the sort of woman who would not tolerate sexism in any form. She went back to medical school at 30 after having sort of been talked out of it. Uh, you know, earlier in her life and became a doctor. Summoning a strong woman's voice has never been a problem for me. Perhaps romantically is that is a, is a problem. I don't know we'll, who can say. But the other thing about this that I, I did one interview where I, this hadn't occurred to me, but I will mention it. Like, I'm a gay man and always have been. So I have never looked at a woman 
as a sexual object. I've never sexually desired or objectified a woman, and so it would never occur to me to write a woman from that point of view as a sexual object. And I'm very lucky in that every show I've ever worked on, maybe it's the symbiotic thing, it would it only make sense to hire somebody like me because I write assertive women, but I've never had to work on a show that didn't have a really mouthy, assertive female protagonist whose story it was, you know? And now I work for Shonda Rhimes and that's all she does. I feel like I've been really lucky in that I don't think I've written on any boy shows. So I've been really lucky. I have my mom's voice in my head and, and never having sexualized a woman in any way. Yeah, I think it really has affected how I approach them. I don't approach them any differently except that and this is important, I know the world treats women differently. And so when I have a woman saying something or doing something, I am always aware of the context and the world in which she's operating. Does that make sense? Politically. I don't want it to sound like I blithely, like characters are characters and men are, many women are the same. They're not. They're not the same. The way the world treats them is not the same. And especially in Shondaland, we never take that for granted. I just want to start this out by saying thank you, Ellen Heinberg. I love when I watch something where there's a powerful, strong woman dealing with something. The strong woman who is powerful in her own right is something that you can't get on every show that you watch. And to be able to connect with that is so empowering. I agree. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of his sort of training in Shondaland mm -hmm. really prepped him. And, and what's great about Wonder Woman is you can almost see the fingerprints of his TV work yeah. all over the final product of the film. I can't believe I got away with two scenes. One is the infirmary scene where Chris is naked. Would you say you're a typical example of your sex? I am above average. That is my Shondaland training coming right up because it was like, right Steve up, is right. naked. Um, <laughs> in case you were wondering whether we want ladies to come to this movie, and we do, we do. But that's what I do. Like that scene on the boat is the other one, which is four and a half pages long. Like that's just people talking. You don't, I don't even get to do that on Scandal. Like, the scenes on Grey's and, and the Shondaland shows, you can't really get past a page or a page and a half. So that infirmary scene is like two pages, two and a half pages. And then the boat scene, I cannot believe that is in a major motion picture. I cannot believe it. And it's, it's a little shorter than, I had them talking about Diana's religious beliefs a little bit longer. And Chris improved one line um, that always gets a laugh where he says, I'm not average, the whole average run from the, like I got dick jokes in Wonder Woman, it's crazy. It's crazy. But then Chris does a callback, you know, like it takes someone with vigor. You know, where I, where I come from, I'm not considered average. You know, um, being a spy, you have to show a certain amount of vigor. Like that was Chris, like. <laughs> So those are the scenes that I, I'm like, I, I still cannot believe they made that. Maybe I'm being naive, but I'm not surprised he was able to get away with those we'll call them scandalous scandalous <laughs> jokes. That's a good word. We're now Shonda Rhimes characters. But I think it, it does take, though, that sort of perfect marriage of an experienced writer 
mixed with a super experienced comic book fan, you know, super geek, if you will. You need to be both in order to get away with those scenes. Exactly. But this film did have at least one major critic, James Cameron. I've heard of that man. Yeah. (laughs) He's directed a couple of movies that made like a a buck or two. A buck or two. (laughs) Yeah. He directed Terminator 2, Aliens, and of course Avatar, which is the highest grossing film of all time. He's known for creating such strong female characters, which is why he might find Wonder Woman not so groundbreaking. He was less of a fan than most, we'll just say. I felt like what James was sort of taking issue with was all the attention that the movie was getting as a breakthrough. Because if you're James Cameron and you made Aliens, and well, Terminator and Aliens, right? And both Terminators, Linda Hamilton is really the star of those two movies. And then Sigourney Weaver is the star of Aliens. I guess because they were written and directed by a man, it was less of an event at the time. I don't know that it got as much press as a breakthrough for, you know, these huge big budget action movies with female heroines. I took that as the point. Like, look guys, I did this 20 years ago. So don't think you're all, you know what I mean? Like, it's getting a lot of attention and they're calling it a breakthrough. Well, what about what I did? Because I did that and nobody's talking about that right now. So that's how I heard it. And honestly, I'm so press shy. I'm so allergic to it that I read the headline and went, ah, I can't. I can't know about it. I can't get involved in it. I can't. So I took his point to be, no, I did that 20, 25 years ago. Again, we're not filmmakers who said, this is our feminist manifesto. We made a Wonder Woman movie. Like we made the movie about a character who's been around since 1944. We never went into the world touting our accomplishment. And, you know, to my knowledge, I don't think anybody involved with the movie is doing that. We're just so stunned and grateful by and for the response. So yeah, go James Cameron. (laughs) 1944. It's like we caught up to Wonder Woman (laughs) instead of the other way around, you know? Which is, it's just amazing to think that, you know, we sit here and we think about, we don't have any strong female empowering characters out there. And it's been there since 1944, ready to tell the story. And it's the time for it, but she's, She's been around. <laughs> For a long time. And the TV show, you know, I, I feel like we got to give a shout out. That was what, Linda Carter? Yes, it was. And, and that show was fun. But yeah, it took Hollywood a long time to catch up to this film. Well, when Alan Heidenberg was here speaking with our students, you know, one thing that came to mind was a quote from the James L. Brooks movie, Broadcast News. It's, what do you do when your real life exceeds your dreams? Well, that's been happening to Alan Heidenberg. He dreamt of Broadway, and then he saw firsthand what it was like to be on Broadway. He dreamt of films, also saw firsthand what it's like to be on films. Everything that he hoped for. Yeah, his dreams do come true. I was very fortunate in that I had been working professionally since I was 10, and I graduated into an off-Broadway show and was on Broadway shortly thereafter where I realized, oh, these people are miserable. Like, I was at the height, I was like, in a Neil Simon show on Broadway, working for Jerry Zaks with Nathan Lane and John Slatter, it was an all-star cast, and they were miserable, and the play wasn't very good, and Neil wasn't happy, and Jerry wasn't happy, and I just thought, like, this is, no one's happy. What's going on? But again, I was like, I need to get my shows up. I need to have my off-Broadway show. I need to get on television. I need to, I need to matter. I need to contribute. I need to 
be successful. And so I feel like a lot of the first part of my career, and maybe you can identify with that because you're at New York Film Academy and you want to be able to do your thing and have people uh, pay you for it and have people watch it and like it and let you do more. And so I feel like I let a lot of great stuff go by being young and wanting to jump ahead and be established and successful, whatever that means. And once I got to the place that I had wanted to go, and this is cliche, everybody talks about this. I got to Broadway and I was like, oh, everybody's unhappy. And then I got to Hollywood and I'm like, oh, everybody's miserable. Like <laughs> everybody wants so much. They want what they don't have. They hate that he got it and she didn't and he did. And it pulls at you. You're constantly comparing yourself to other people. Well, that's the truth about Hollywood, isn't it? You're looking at other people saying, oh, look at them, they're being successful. I gotta do that, that's what I gotta do. I, I, I wanna be them, <laughs> I want what they have, <laughs> without sticking to your truth. Right. And it, it's, a, it's a one man race. I, I think right. sometimes it, it, it doesn't feel that way. People are like, oh, you're pushing aside other people for work, but the truth is if you create things, mm -hmm. in that regard, it's just you versus you. Which is a better place to be. Right, 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 right. You don't have to worry about the horse next to you. Exactly. And I think the best lesson Alan Heinberg got from his, his experience is that he, he put himself in the best position to be happy. And that is when the work came to him. And only then was he able to do his best. I had a turning point. I did a show called Looking for HBO. Michael Lannon created that show with Andrew Haig. And it was a tough one. It was a really tough one for me. And after one season, I left. And after having been out of Shondaland for about three or four years at that point to develop shows and like I was doing the Amazon pilot, I said to my agent, you know what, I give up. I give up trying to have my own show. I give up wanting to have a huge superhero movie. I don't think I'm ever gonna have any of that and I don't care. All I wanna do is go back and work with people I love and care about and I don't care anymore. And I said, I'm over it. I'm over trying to strive, I'm over it. Trying to get my name out there, having a brand. So the turning point was being old enough to know, oh, there's really no there there. There's no level of accomplishment where you are happy or you know recognized and suddenly it's all awesome and you're awesome and you can, you know, date whoever you want or whatever it is. Like, first you're insulted because it's like, well, nobody's thinking about me. And then you're like, oh, this is so liberating. Nobody's thinking about me. It's awesome. So I said to Larry, let's just look for a great, fun project with people who are nice. And then he said, you know, your friend Pete Nowak is leaving Scandal to go into How to Get Away with Murder. Why don't you sit in his chair at Scandal? And I was like, oh, that sounds perfect. And two days later, I was sitting in Pete's chair, who is my best friend, at Scandal. And I spent the next year loving just being one of Shonda's army, just seeing my friends every day. And I've been working, you know, it's the same people from Grace, so it's been 10 years I've been with these people. And then Wonder Woman happened, and I said no to Zach. I said no, I choose Scandal. I didn't pursue it, I didn't want it, I tried to quit it. I was really content, not just in a fake way, in a real way, because I'd been so beaten up by the development process and by what had happened and looking, um, and I was just tired of it. I was tired of trying to achieve and succeed in that traditional sense. I just wanted to do good work with my friends. So 
If there's a lesson, it's giving up. You know what I mean? Like the lesson is about passion and about craft and not about having people know my name. And look, I'm not an egomaniac, really. I mean, I have that part of me that would love for people to know my name and stuff, but like bad shit happens when people know your name. Like they come after you and they all want, it's not great. And if what you're concerned with is your name being out there and what people are saying about you and doing, you're not gonna get any work done. You're just not. So by giving up the dream of what traditional success looks like, I got my name on Wonder Woman. That is how that happened. I'm not telling you not to strive. Shonda hates the word dream. She hates it, like follow your dreams. And she's right. She's like, don't sit around dreaming. Don't follow, lead and do. And that's what I'm telling you to do too. But make it about your craft and make it about working with people you love on projects you love. Don't think about the end result. Listen, Eric, just give up. Yeah, yeah, this is the most <laughs> positive message from everything you said. Give up, well, it, it, it's funny too, it's like, Give up the yeah, the yeah, yeah. need to be liked, the need to be a rock star. Need to be first. And need to be first. And start doing what you love to right. do and surround yourself with good people. Yeah, so it's kind of like stop dreaming and start doing. Right. Or don't dream it, be it. Uh, go go work. <laughs> go work. Just do. And and it's okay Like if it's not the greatest title because uh, you keep working and better work finds you at some point, which definitely happened with him. Well, we want to thank Alan Heinberg for speaking with our students. And we want to thank all of you for listening. She is Ariel Seagard. And he is Eric Connor. And this episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Phil Kaufman. To watch this interview or our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and Eric Connor. Executive produced by John Sherlock and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the entire staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or, you know, wherever you listen. See, See you, you next, next time. time. <laughs> I love Thank that, you, you know. Christian. Thanks, Christian.